You are back with the conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. This is Catherine Cruz. Earlier this morning, we checked in with Big Island Mayor Harry Kim and got his take on the reopening of Indra Island travel and the calls across the country to review practices of our police force. The mayor believes the high cost of the economic shutdown was not good, but was a necessary move to deal with the COVID-19 pandemic. He cautions, though, that our community shouldn't get too relaxed, even though restrictions are gradually being lifted. I think people should know, you know, the state of Hawaii is in a very beautiful place, and I'll go from that to the island of Hawaii. Uh, We have had uh, two new cases, as you may know, but those two new cases were travel-related, as stated in a release this morning. You know, and we make uh, this work this morning. Uh, we get together with the Department of Health and everybody come see what we're going to say. I'm just going to read to you real briefly what uh, was said this morning, just a one paragraph. On today's update of COVID-19, the number of active cases for Hawaii Island is two, and these two are being monitored by the Department of Health. Both cases are identified as travel-related and emphasizes the importance of caution while traveling. You know, just simple words. What it really means is that we've had no community-based so-called people that are active here, meaning all contact was made by going to the mainland or mainland people coming here. So for this island, it's a, a beautiful place to be, just like Kauai. And Mau Mau is very close to that. You know, in regards to what we can truthfully say, we have a real good handle on the local community-based spread of it. Because anytime you pass a three-week, four-week, or like Kauai, five-week or six weeks, in many places of the island of Hawaii, it is beyond five and six weeks also that uh, there was, you know, no one on the local level using that word uh, that had the virus after 10,000 people being tested, uh, putting all the into one package. We had roughly 10,000 people in this island being tested, which is what, 5% of the whole, and out of the 5,000, only, I hate to use the word only, but it is only 83 people that were positive. When they look at that, you know, you have to feel pretty good as far as where we are. Are you worried, though, as travel restrictions oh, are absolutely. relaxed, you know, that, that people from Oahu might bring it over to you folks? Well, yeah, then, you know, that's why, you know, in discussion with the governor, we just got off the phone from him in regards to we really have to make sure that we have a totally good statewide system in identifying who's coming, where they're going to stay, and monitoring that situation, especially when we... And the time will come when we expand it to travel outside of Hawaii. But yes, we're concerned because, you know, there are active cases in Oahu. But unfortunately, it's rather control also. Uh, but yes, we are very concerned. And I guarantee you that, you know, we will monitor it. We work with everyone to make sure that we're going to try to keep it contained and controlled. We've been so fortunate that I can say that not one individual had to be admitted to the hospital except for an overnight. Uh, We're so fortunate in that. On top of that, we are so fortunate. That's all the good fortunes for that reason, and no one was fatally affected by it, whether on senior season programs or anything. We should really, though, be very cautious and wear our masks and keep our distance. Oh, that, uh, I'll read my last uh, statement on that because you're absolutely right, and so we cautious of what we're saying. The state and island of Hawaii continue to move forward on uh, reopenings as Hawaii is in a good place because of your efforts of prevention. In going forward, know the importance of continuing to follow the preventive policies of keeping Hawaii safe. And that is the last sentence of that morning announcement, and that's an absolute. All of us have got to realize that the virus is still out there. We're in a very good position. Uh, I don't want us to be anywhere near other places, not just the numbers, but if you think of Florida and other states, California, my personal opinion is uh, it is the situation it is because I think there were two uh, lacks or so in regards to trying to minimize the spread of it to mass mandatory and other kind of controls as far as isolation. And I'm very proud of uh, the people of Hawaii that we do not have that kind of major problems of people refusing to listen to the you know, prevention elements of distancing and gatherings as well as masks. 
And Mayor, I understand that you've made some clarification about the vacation rental reopening rule. So local families from Oahu or, or the other islands, when they travel there to the big island, that they can stay in vacation rentals, right? That's correct. And they can stay in because that was list, uh, lifted uh, on this past Monday in regards to vacation rentals or bed and breakfast uh, facilities. Tourism must know that they still have to be quarantined in their hotels and motels before they go there, but the locals can stay, and there's no requirement of any kind of quarantine as of this past Monday. Yeah, and you did have one arrest uh, with a case tied to a so-called cult, the Carbon Nation group, and I know people were a little nervous about this group and, and concerned because they've been, I think, kicked out of a couple of other places. Yeah, you know, besides that point and besides the cult, but the you know, it is all part of the whole picture. So, you know, th- that is something that we learn from and points out to all of us, you know, that we really must be very aware of the holes in uh, the p- programs of identifying in isolation. The, these were 21 or so people that came from the West Coast and other parts. You know, they, they were supposed to be quarantined and and stay only in hotels and motels. Obviously, they filled up formed and they stayed in a place that was not. And uh, fortunately, the system in regards to checks was very, you know, well followed. So uh, they would, the uh, Department of Health tried to call them to verify their, where they were put down on paper they were going to stay. They did not answer the phone, so they contacted civil defense, and civil defense contacted police who investigated, and arrests were made to the property owner that was renting them the place but because uh, that's an illegal violation, number one. Number two, they did not stay within their quarters. Matter of fact, they went almost straight from the airport to the beach. You know, and that's violation number two. And when they checked in the residence, they went around different places, violation number three. And all of that is because of the system of, you know, so-called tracing. And I'm very, very proud of all of the people that involved from state to the county, you know, to identify that. So that was a lesson for us to really try to catch up the holes that these people snuck through, or intentionally otherwise, and uh, we learned from that. What are your thoughts about some of this, I don't know, like you would call them vigilante groups, but, you know, community groups that are really stepping up to try and ferret out these scoff laws? You know, I don't like the word vigilante, but uh, the point is that we're a small community of only 200,000 compared to one or a million people. You know, uh, this is our home, and we emphasize uh, from day one the importance that uh, this was stated over and over again. This is a community issue, and this is a community involvement issue to address it. And I, I'm glad we have the eyes and ears of the community helping their government. So it's just a matter of asking people to please respect the Aina, respect the, the residents and the communities that you come into as a visitor. Absolutely, and with that, and most especially, you know, represent, uh, respect the community, and which means uh, the people. I understand that uh, the county council has approved the budget, uh, which includes money for uh, body cams for the police department. The big one was actually the first in testing these out, but the last county to adopt it. Well, it's basically because of finances and nothing else, but you know, you write on the first part, there is absolutely from the beginning total support by the police administration for uh, the pursuit of the uh, cameras, and uh, that will be done. Anything else you want to add just about the concern and the calls that we're seeing on the mainland about defunding the police department and, um, you know, whether we need to reevaluate our practices here? You know, I'll speak for the island, but I think it's uh, for the whole state. There's one thing here that I'm born and raised here. There's one thing here that when I answered a question from a mainland caller, I said, you know, the island of Hawaii has always supported and pushed for a program called community policing. And I think if you have an attitude that the police department is part of the community and not apart from it, you know, you will prevent a lot of problems. Community policing is a real, real you know, asset to that outside of the, the regular jobs of enforcement, but just everything of working with the community with a theme, simply the police department is part of the community. And in their programs, of, uh, it goes all the way back to the school relations officer and different kind of programs. I think the small town attitude is great, although we 
you know, 200,000 is not that small. We have one police department, and the police chief and I have talked about it, and how in just two guys talking, we're so grateful that we are still a cosmopolitan community. The kind of things that are happening in the mailing and elsewhere is really, even for me, it's sometimes is a shocker, disappointment, you know, that's everything negative that this kind of things is happening in our country. And I, I feel very proud of who we are as a people, that this is not a problem. And the chief and I talked about it, of uh, a grace of the com community we live in, that this is still not a problem. And all of us should know that now, learn what's going on, and make a pledge that uh, this will never be of Hawaii. That was a conversation we had with Hawaii Mayor Harry Kim this morning about policing issues as well as a relaxation of inter-island travel. Kim will join other mayors along with Governor David Ige on the Governor's Facebook Live Q&A event at 2 p.m. today. And it's now time to take a look across the globe, where experts suggest that the true number of COVID-19 deaths in the United States could be more than 100,000 higher than the official total. And thousands are quarantined in Germany after an outbreak at a slaughterhouse was reported. All that and more from the BBC. This is the Coronavirus Global Update on Thursday the 18th of June. I'm Oliver Conway. The BBC finds the true number of COVID-19 deaths around the world could be more than 100,000 higher than the official total. Germany quarantines thousands of people after an outbreak at an abattoir and do social media platforms pose a health threat by circulating conspiracy theories. According to the latest tally, more than 450,000 people around the world have now died of COVID-19. But a BBC investigation has found the real number could be much higher. Sophia Fetiza has the details. 130,000 people at least have died during this pandemic on top of the figures that are already known to us. Some of these will be unrecorded COVID deaths, but others are sort of consequences of the disease of the virus. 7,000 people in northwest Germany have been ordered into quarantine after a coronavirus outbreak at a large abattoir. At least 600 workers have tested positive. Here's Damien McGuinness. This isn't the first time that a German meat processing plant has been hit by COVID-19. Abattoirs often rely on migrant workers and there are allegations that they are vulnerable to infection because of poor working conditions and cramped accommodation. The head of Russia's healthcare watchdog has announced a big increase in the number of health workers killed by COVID-19. Ala Samoylova said nearly 500 medical staff had died, up from 100 three weeks ago. Sarah Rainsford is in Moscow. The watchdog head talks about serious shortcomings that there had been, particularly at the very beginning of the outbreak of COVID-19 here in, in Russia, talking about uh, the dire shortage of PPE and saying, uh, was there more that we could have done to prevent medical workers dying, she said. That uh, was a question and the answer coming from this official was, yes, there was. India has had its credit rating lowered by the ratings agency Fitch, which said the Indian economy had been hit hard by the pandemic. The Indian government has relaxed restrictions to try to get businesses up and running again, but it's facing a sharp increase in new infections. Hospitals in the capital Delhi are already struggling with a shortage of beds, as Rahul Tandon explains. By the end of July, it's estimated the city will need more than 150,000 beds to deal with the number of coronavirus patients. At the moment, it has just under 10,000. Despite this, India's Prime Minister Narendra Modi says business activity is getting back to normal with consumption and retail demand returning to pre-pandemic levels. Meanwhile, Britain has become the latest country to pump more money into its economy to try to prevent a deep recession. The Bank of England is making available more than $120 billion worth of funding, but it did say the economic impact of the pandemic might be less severe than initially feared. Kazakhstan is planning to reintroduce quarantine restrictions because of the growing number of coronavirus cases there. Nearly 16,000 people have tested positive in the Central Asian nation, including the former president, Nursultan Nazarbayev. Here's Abdul Jalil Abdurasilov. Mr Nazarbayev, who ruled Kazakhstan for three decades and who turns 80 next month, remains one of the most influential people in the country. The news comes just days before Kazakhstan reintroduces restrictions to stop the spread of coronavirus. Last month, the government eased the lockdown even as the number of new daily cases continued to rise. Chile will tighten travel restrictions in the capital Santiago after officials confirmed more than 200,000 cases of the virus. 
people in Santiago have been in lockdown for more than a month and will now only be allowed to leave their homes twice a week. Social media platforms like Facebook and YouTube may pose a health risk because of the conspiracy theories they spread about coronavirus. That is according to a new study. The British researchers also found that people who get their news from social media appear more likely to break lockdown rules. Mark Easton has more. The study by researchers from King's College London analysed survey results which asked if people thought that COVID-19 was made in a laboratory, that death and infection figures were being manipulated or that there was no hard evidence the virus exists. Those who believed such conspiracies were significantly more likely to get their news from Facebook and YouTube than from TV and radio. Finally, four of the most popular shows in London's West End, Les Miserables, Mary Poppins, Hamilton and The Phantom of the Opera, have announced they won't return this year because of the coronavirus. Rebecca Jones has this report. Do you hear the people say? It's the longest-running musical in the West End, but Les Miserables will remain closed for the rest of the year. Consultations over redundancies for employees in all the productions have now begun. The show must go on. Used to be a sacred law of showbiz. Just not at the moment. And that's the Coronavirus Global Update. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Par Hawaii, proud to support Hawaii Nature Center for 30 years and their nature adventure camps on Oahu and Maui. On now. Registration at hawaiinaturecenter.org. Each week, New Dimensions explores the social, political, scientific, environmental, and spiritual frontiers with some of today's foremost social innovators, thinkers, scientists, and creative artists. Hello, I'm Martin Shaw, author of Courting the Wild Twin. Next time on New Dimensions, I'll be talking about seeking the exiled wild twin located deep inside and outside us. Sunday morning at 11. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from the Scheidler College of Business at UH Manoa, now offering distance EMBA in travel industry management starting this fall. Scheidler.hawaii.edu. Here on Oahu, hundreds of court cases at district court have had to be rescheduled. We talked to uh, Deputy uh, District Court Administrator Judge Melanie May about how the judiciary has had to pivot and readjust its calendar. We have had court every single day immediately after the governor's stay-home order because there are certain cases that are absolutely essential and time-sensitive and we needed to hear those cases despite the many concerns and public health challenges that everyone in our state and in our country were dealing with. So what do you think has been the biggest change? What should the public know about coming down to district court? I think the biggest change is that things are changing week by week. And before someone should come to court, they should figure out whether or not they still have a court date or not. They should try and determine if there's an alternative to coming to court and to make sure that they've built in enough time and have planned ahead if they do need to come to court. Generally, when I've gone down to district court, you know, there's been the large cattle calls. It's traffic court, right, where you've got to come in because you were speeding or you didn't have your insurance and license. How is all that being handled? So at the current moment, we are having Zoom hearings for many of our traffic infraction cases. Traffic infractions are the exact type of cases that you're talking about. Speeding, parking tickets, jaywalking, seatbelt violations, the kinds of cases where only a fine is involved or community service and there is no jail time. For those cases, people have the option of doing a Zoom hearing from their comfort of their home, their office, um, or even on the beach if they have good Wi-Fi <laughs> there. So how has that worked out? It's worked out really well. Um, we've been doing it for about three weeks now, and our participation rate is close to 90%. It's higher than the normal appearance rate when we had 
cases being done in court. So what does this mean going forward post-COVID? Do you think we're just going to keep with this Zoom option? I think it's been very popular and to the extent that we can continue to offer it as a public service, it is definitely something we are looking into. Will this help with the backlog at all? Um, It has helped us to start tackling the backlog because we are able to start hearing cases and that's really important because for a lot of people, just the stress of knowing that they have a case that's not yet unresolved, to be able to take care of that case and either pay the fine if there's a fine or to have the dismissal in hand goes a long way of letting them move forward. And how does that work with the Zoom calls? Because, you know, I just had my driver's license renewed and I had a specific time and appointment and I was in there lickety split. I was so impressed just because they had a certain time I made sure I was there and things just moved so efficiently so you know I wonder about that rather than just having everybody come at eight o'clock in the morning if you had particular times that maybe you could move through this quicker yes so for our traffic contraction zoom hearings we're setting about 10 every half hour so people log in they're able to observe everybody else's case before and after they can stay on the whole morning if they like once their case is called uh, they get to address the judge tell their side of the story if they choose to do so and then they're informed of their decision online. Um, We've noticed that for some people it seems to be a more comfortable process because you're sitting at home, you're not having to stand up and walk down the skinny aisle in front of 50 other people and if you're someone who hates public speaking that can be very hard. But it seems like when we've done Zoom hearings people feel more comfortable because they're just looking at the screen in the comfort of their own home maybe with their cat or dog on their side, just being able to kind of have a conversation with the judge about their case. I guess there's that shame factor when you're (laughs) there in front of 50 people and and you have to tell everybody, you know, what you did or didn't do. So I guess it gets, gets past that. Yes. What about in cases where, let's say, you need to have a police officer there, and many times uh, the officer, let's say, doesn't show, and a, and a case has to be thrown out? So we're not quite at the stage where we're doing trials yet. For traffic infractions, it's a two-step process. So the first process is um, you get to come into court, you tell the judge your side of the story. If you have photographs or a copy of your updated registration or other things, you can show that to the judge. Uh, The judge just decides based on what the person has said, as well as any information that the police officer has listed on the citation. If someone has a traffic infraction hearing um, and the court rules against them, at that point, then they can ask for a trial. And then at the trial, they would be able to bring their witnesses. Uh, The state would subpoena the police officer, sheriff, or other person who saw the alleged violation. And at that time, there would be testimony from both sides. Okay. But is that something that's being considered for use with Zoom? I think for Zoom hearings right now, we're looking at them primarily for the traffic infraction cases, for pretrial conferences, perhaps status conferences, or motions where there isn't any evidence being directly presented. You know, Zoom is something that's relatively new, not just to the legal profession, but, you know, to the, to society in general in terms of its broader application. Um, and one of the things that people have kind of gone back and forth about is, do you still have the same opportunity to assess the credibility of a witness when they're appearing remotely? Um, do parties still have a fair opportunity to cross-examine a witness if they're not in the same room as the other person. So I think that's one of the issues that many courts, not just the Hawaii courts, will be needing to address, you know, in the months and perhaps years ahead. And so is there anything that the public needs to know just about the other courts here on Oahu? All five of the district court courthouses are open. Um, they're open in terms of people being able to file documents with the court, able to pay fines and fees if they like. Uh, They're able to obtain their traffic abstracts. But I would encourage people to really take a look at the state judiciary website to see if there are alternatives to coming to court. You know, I know right now people are really hesitant about having to leave their homes and going out into large public spaces. The judiciary has done a lot of wonderful things to make things more accessible from home so that people don't actually have to take the bus or drive to court, find parking, and come into a building. So as an example, if people who don't have attorneys want to file a small claims case or want to file a temporary restraining order, they can file those cases uh, using a service that's called the Court Document Drop-Off. It's basically a way where people can email their documents to court 
and court staff will upload the documents into the court system. It is one way that, you know, people don't have to come to court unless they have a court date. You know, there are other options as well. You know, somebody recently received a parking ticket um, and they just want to pay for the ticket instead of asking for a hearing. People can pay traffic citations online as long as it's within 21 days of receiving it. I would encourage people to, first of all, find out if the court date that they think they have is something they still have to um, appear for. You know, due to COVID-19, thousands of cases have had to be rescheduled each week. There are two ways where someone can find out whether or not they have a court date. One would be to check eCourt Kokua and look up their case on the judiciary website. The second way would be to call the Ho'okele desk, and that number is 538-5629. That was a District Court Deputy Chief Judge Melanie May talking about how the judiciary is adapting during the disruption of COVID times. She says if you have to go down to court in person, she says go early and wear a mask. It is now time for our reality check with our partners at Honolulu Civil Beat. Health reporter Eleni Gale joins us with more on the positive COVID cases at Halinane, a nursing home in Makiki. Good morning. Good morning. So, yeah, this is a, a kind of a, a, I say, a breaking story. We've got uh, new information today. Yeah, uh, the state just came out with the announcement that Hawaii as a state saw 18 new cases of COVID today. Um, All of them were in Honolulu or um, on the island of Oahu. Um, But what I've been focusing on is what seems to be a growing outbreak at Halenani Rehabilitation and Nursing Center here on Oahu. There were five new cases there today, which is double what there were yesterday. So as of just now, um, two employees and eight of their residents at Halenani have unfortunately been um, diagnosed with COVID-19. And that's disheartening because we've been able to really keep those numbers down across the state. Uh, you know, there was that one incident, uh, you know, where we had problems in Maui, but this one here in Honolulu with so many patients now. Yeah, and, you know, we've seen this play out on the mainland, so it's definitely been a top concern. And unfortunately, it shows how quickly um, COVID-19 can kind of take hold. This this current cluster of cases at Halenani, it started last week, Wednesday, when one of their nurses fell ill after completing their shift. Um, so that nurse was sent home was tested the next day and received a positive um, diagnosis for COVID-19 that Friday. Um, and so the affected unit, they haven't specified which unit it is, but they say about 17 or 20 residents live there. Um, now we're at, uh, what is today? Today is Thursday. In just a week, you know, it's gone from one single employee to about um, 10 people affected. So, um and also seeing nursing homes and COVID-19 clusters on the mainland, it is definitely a concern. Now, I know the information is limited and this is just happening now, but uh, do we have any handle on whether anyone's hospitalized? Um, As far as I could tell, one patient on Monday was transferred to a local hospital. They haven't specified about any new hospitalizations today. Um, earlier this week, they had said the residents who were um, who were ill or infected, they are in isolation, um, but we're still waiting to hear more details about that. Um, of course, the reason why we don't want to see COVID-19 in nursing homes or skilled nursing facilities or any long-term care facility for that matter is because um, the you know elderly folks are at higher risk for complications if they do get infected. Um, And unfortunately, we've seen about 40% of all COVID-19 deaths uh, nationwide have um, occurred in nursing homes. Now, we have talked to uh, uh, the head of AARP here in Hawaii, Kayla E. Lopez, and then also Hilton uh, Rathel with the Hawaii Healthcare Association. And they were talking about, yeah, the need to, you know, 
test people as they come into these facilities uh, just to make sure that you don't have people from the outside bringing it in. Right. Yeah. And, you know, ever since March, a lot of, I mean, pretty much every uh, elderly care facility has put in these really stringent protocol. We, um, you know, people with loved ones, they aren't allowed to go see their family members. There's been this very strict no visitor policy. Um, and they've been, you know, stepping up infection control procedures. But there's also so much, you know, a facility can do. Um, and because of what seems to be asymptomatic transmission of the virus, um, folks like Kiali Lopez at AARP Hawaii um, are saying, you know, we should definitely step up more uh, preemptive testing um regimens to see if we can catch this virus um, if and to see if it's spreading underneath our noses. Um, that's something that hasn't necessarily been conducted uh, universally at elderly care facilities in Hawaii. Um, and part of that is because diagnostic tests don't always detect the virus if um, if folks are you know tested perhaps a little bit early along in the infection period. Um, but still, there's been a lot of calls um, for more, at least routine surveillance testing to detect these, these types of outbreaks. Yeah, we'll have to keep an eye uh, on this uh, developing story. But uh, thanks so much, Eleni. Thank you so much for having me. That was reporter Eleni Gill with today's Reality Check. To read her story, visit civilbeat.org. was overwhelmed by the current health crisis, only five states conducted their elections through mail-in voting. Now concerns over social distancing are causing election offices across the country to reconsider how best to bring the ballot to the people. Hawaii was among those five states, and while mail-in voting is available for all residents, some are concerned about the lack of voter services center, service centers across the state. Lisa Gibson is a group leader for the Indivisible Hawaii Statewide Network, uh, which works in collaboration with Common Cause Hawaii uh, uh, Executive Director Sandy Ma uh, on the issue of voter rights and accessibility. Uh, they spoke with the Conversations Harrison Patino about the power of the ballot in this election year. We start with Sandy Ma, who provides context on Hawaii's existing vote-by-mail system. Hawaii in 2020, the 2020 elections, will be voting by mail statewide. And we have a vote-by-mail law that was adopted in 2019 by the state legislature. So we are going all-in, 100% vote-by-mail with the 2020 elections. We did not have a pilot project in which, you know, we have one county voting by mail, seeing how it worked out and if we needed to tweak any of our processes. So we are just going 100% in vote-by-mail, all-in, all at once with the 2020 elections after the vote-by-mail law was adopted in 2019 by the Hawaii State Legislature. So we do have a vote-by-mail law, and we are going forward with it with the 2020 elections. You know, Hawaii is constantly referred to in, you know, one of the five states that have a vote-by-mail law, and that's really a place of honor, and Hawaii should be very proud of that. But what Sandy brings up is that the transition, those states who are don't have vote by mail who are quickly moving towards it, like Pennsylvania or Wisconsin, you know, places like that, they don't have the capacity to make that change quickly. So what Sandy's talking about is the transition is not an easy process and it could be fraught with problems. Now, when we talk about basic voter infrastructure, do either of you see mail-in voting as a part of that? So vote by mail is uh, mail-in voting. Every registered voter will be provided a ballot to them in the mail. So that means registered voters will be mailed a ballot to complete at home. Under Hawaii's vote-by-mail law, 18 days, approximately 18 days prior to the primary election and approximately 18 days prior to the general election, a ballot will show up in a registered voter's mailbox to complete at home or in their car or wherever they happen to be. And then the ballot should be mailed back to the county elections office. And under Hawaii's vote-by-mail law, the ballots have to be received by the clerk's office by 7 p.m. 
on election day. So unlike before, where it's postmarked, this is not the same any longer. So ballots must be received by 7 p.m. on election day. Or you could take it in person to a voter service center, and there are only eight voter service centers statewide. So, for example, on the Big Island right now, they are planning a voter service center in Hilo, and they're planning one in Kona. So what that means is if you live in Kau or you live in North Kohala, and you lost your ballot, you have to drive to one of those places and get a ballot or find whatever in-person services you can get. So on Oahu, there's one in Honolulu, one in Eva. Let's say you live in Haleiwa. Or on Maui, there's one in Wailuku. What if you live in Hana? It could take you all day to go get service to help make sure that you can vote. If you were to take Hawaii and put it against the nationwide standard, how does Hawaii rank in terms of overall voter accessibility? Having a vote by mail as our state law really sets us apart. That's not the issue here. The issue here is the execution of it. It could serve to disenfranchise certain voters if they're geographically isolated or have some problem. Their car doesn't work, so they can't get to a voter service center. Those are the problems. So we need more. We basically need more voter service centers. The other issue that I have is that I think it's really important for states to have their ballots count if they're postmarked by the day of the election. So what's happened, great examples of what just happened in Wisconsin. A lot of people didn't get their mail-in ballots until very late. So they couldn't mail them in on time. So there's got to be more flexibility. In fact, the language I'm hearing through the national group that I work with is we should stop referring to Election Day. At this point, we need to start talking about election season. Lisa, do you think it's a feasible task to transition Election Day to a broader thing like election season? I think it's a reality. I don't think it's a secret, particularly all these states on the mainland that are transitioning to paper ballots, you know, they haven't had time to transition. Colorado, which is considered the gold standard for voting by mail, I I think when they actually did the full transition, a significant proportion of the state already voted by mail. I don't know, 60, 70%. So people already were familiar with the process. And the other states are, of course, Oregon and Washington State. They've been at this for a long time. To pull this off in a very short in a few months isn't easy at all. Do you think it took a crisis like COVID-19 for us to really reconsider how we implement voting? It certainly shined a bright light on it. If you look at Maryland's primary, which just happened June 2nd, the governor ordered every registered voter in the state to be mailed the ballot, which is what's going to happen in Hawaii under our vote-by-mail process. There were still extraordinarily long lines in Baltimore for people to vote in person because the vote centers were limited. And so we just don't want that to happen here. We don't want it to happen for safety reasons due to COVID. We also don't want people who don't have access to their own transportation to have to get on a bus, to have to travel, to switch bus lines. There are a myriad of reasons to have more voter service centers. People shouldn't have to choose between being healthy and voting. I think right now we're hearing a lot of vitriol from our administration against the idea of mail-in voting. At what point do you just sort of tune that out and realize that voter reform is something that has to happen at more of a local level? There is no democracy if citizens don't have access to safe, secure, and accessible voting. It really is going to require citizens getting involved. It's also a really complicated topic. You know, you talk to people about this and they walk away because it's, it's arcane and it's complicated, especially when you get into voting machines. Ay, ay, ay. And the technology of voting, it's too complex. But the simple way to express it is we need to be able to vote safely, securely, and our vote needs to count. I mean, when you talk about the recent history of American voting, there's a little bit of trauma and distrust in the idea of voting and that interference might be an ongoing issue. Does vote by mail and the idea of confronting these voting issues on a more local level, does that do anything to alleviate that trauma? You know, voting by mail has been shown to be safe and secure because it is a paper process. It's a paper ballot. You get it. You get it at home. You could research the candidates online. You could think about it. You have time. You are not going in person to a polling station and waiting and feeling frustrated like you have to make the decision right then and there like you're taking a test. And so it's actually more conducive to a thoughtful 
choosing of a candidate for office. You could track that your ballot has been received and has been counted. So it is safe and secure. And it's a paper process versus in Hawaii, with this vote by mail, you want to vote in person. And I totally respect that if someone does want to do that. On the counties, except for Kauai, you will be voting on a machine. The systems exist. The best practices exist. This is also subject to a lot of conspiracy theories, which, you know, let's face it, the Russians want Americans to lose confidence in their voting systems. So that's a bad thing. Handmarked paper ballots address a lot of that because you can actually count what's going on. Not to dip too much into the national political discourse, but to both of your points, you're sort of inadvertently advocating for the importance of the U.S. postal system. Oh, of course. Yes, (laughs) definitely. Yes, we definitely need the postal system. We definitely uh, support the postal system as integral to the vote-by-mail process. Now, for a final point, just to look at a big-picture idea of voting, at what point do you think that the issue of making voting more accessible collides with convincing people, particularly the young and disenfranchised, that voting even matters in the first place? Well, I think about the protests that are going on in Hawaii and across the country surrounding Black Lives Matter and, you know, what happened in Minnesota with George Floyd. It is due to the activism of young people and minority populations. I think of voting as an act of protest. We vote for issues we care about. We vote to protest actions that are going on that are not just. And I think that this is a way that young people can be activated to make a difference. This is how people are heard in the political process, and this is how change happens. The Civil Rights Movement, the Civil Rights Act of 1964, the Voting Rights Act, all of it was done through changes in legislation, through Congress. It is the vote. Women, the suffragette movement, the women's right to vote. This year is the 100th anniversary of the 19th Amendment and women's right to vote. That is all voting rights. That is why the vote is important and why young people can be motivated, are incredibly motivated, and I do believe they will turn out. Yes, we stand in the streets, we hold signs, and we march, but voting is how things get done, how change happens. You've been hearing from HBR's Harrison Patino, who spoke with Common Cause Hawaii Executive Director Sandy Ma and Lisa Gibson of the Indivisible Hawaii Statewide Network about the new voting by mail process. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from the Honolulu Museum of Art, with a collection reflecting the cultural diversity of the islands and a commitment to presenting art and exhibitions that inspire. More at honolulumuseum.org. Roughly half of all Native Hawaiians now live outside of Hawaii. Offshore from Honolulu Civil Bee explores why people are leaving the islands today and the challenges they face when returning home. Join me, Ku'uka'uanoi, on an exploration of the Hawaiian diaspora, Saturday at 4, here on HPR One. This morning, HPR reporter Casey Harlow joins us. He's been keeping an eye on a situation involving international students at the University of Hawaii at Manoa. Good morning, Casey. Good morning, Catherine. Thanks for having me on here. Actually, originally, the story was supposed to be about food insecurity, and I stumbled upon a study that was taken back in 2017 at the University of Hawaii at Manoa, which said out of the students that they surveyed, about 44% or nearly half were food insecure. And that kind of led me down this rabbit hole of, wait a minute, are there still students here? international students. And so I started following up on that. And that led me to the East-West Center. I reached out to the East-West Center and found out that 180 of their international students are still here. And the East-West Center has been putting them up in their dormitories. And they have basically been there this whole time. And because of COVID-19, they weren't able to have any income. Food is kind of 
scarce or, you know, healthy meals is also kind of an issue because you have to also figure in the exchange rates from their home country to here and the cost of living here in Hawaii as well. I spoke to Ann Hartman, who's the Dean of Education at the East-West Center, and she told me that students basically had about a week week and a half to decide whether they wanted to go home or to wait it out. As you can remember, the initial weeks of the COVID-19 pandemic, we didn't know how long this was going to last. Most of them decided to wait it out if their countries didn't already shut down because of COVID-19. So they're stuck. Exactly. And so this only worsened their financial hardship and food insecurity. And if there are students who aren't in dorms, they're living off campus, they still have bills to pay. They still have rent to pay. So if you don't have any income, how are you going to make ends meet? And there's also something to be said about mental health among international students. And this is Seru Tangivakitini of Fiji, who is a graduate fellow at the East-West Center. And he had this to say about their situation. Mental health is one of the biggest issues that we worry about. And mental health is an issue regardless of COVID-19 or anything. But with grad school, like school is hard enough as it is. And especially when you don't have an outlet for the stress that you go through like going to the beach or just being able to go in to the bar and have a drink or all these restrictions, they all add up and they're compounded and students are all going through these issues and we're restricted to our rooms, which may not be such a healthy thing. Also, the loss of GA ships and TA ships for some of the students and because of that, like, you know, paying rent, food insecurity, a lot of these other things come into play. And uh, just for clarification, GA ships and TA ships, that's graduate assistants and teaching assistants. So those are kind of typical jobs that they could take and get paid for. And I spoke to them kind of like middle of the way through this pandemic where the restrictions were still locked down and a lot of different things were closed. So they basically were just stuck in their rooms. And on top of everything, there was concerns about the future, especially with meeting U.S. visa requirements. And this is something that we don't really think about. But when you go abroad, there are certain requirements that the U.S. asks you to meet, such as having health insurance. And Uyanga Batsaks from Mongolia, she has this to say. We are required to have a special type of health insurance, which is beyond the normal health insurance for resident students. And if we don't comply with this regulation and buy this coverage, we are risking non-compliant and even may face the risk of leaving the country. And it's really hard to pay for additional costs such as this health insurance when you are struggling with basic needs such as food, rent. That kind of brings us to the relief options at the time because UH was advising students to check in on FAFSA, which is the federal student aid, which if you've been a student the last, you know, 20 or more years, you would be familiar with that. And also the University of Hawaii established an emergency student relief fund, but that fund only could cover maybe between 100 and $500. But in the meantime, the East-West Center, what has changed through all this, a lot of things went into place when I last talked to to these students and they have taken numerous steps to address the needs of international students such as setting up their own emergency student relief fund and this is Ann Hartman, Dean of Education at the East-West Center. The East-West Center put together a student emergency fund anticipating that there would be these needs uh, for people like Uyanga and we wanted to be able to meet those needs and we wanted to be able to do so in a substantive and meaningful way that was not just a couple hundred dollars here or there. And I am happy to tell everyone that they have so far raised $52,000. Wow. And they have received about 109 donations and they even had a matching gift in the amount of $10,000 which they met to help them along the way. And they've also been able to help students in more substantial ways and they have been able to help a majority of their students students. And here's one story that she has given just talking about the kind of assistance that they give with the Student uh, Emergency Relief Fund. We also helped support another student whose scholarships ended because he graduated, but he can't get back home to his home country. And he's starting a new degree program in the fall, but he doesn't have any way to support himself over the summer. So we were able to support him for an additional three months here until he could start a fellowship program that he has in the fall. Without that, he really didn't know what he was going to be able to do. So because he was stuck here and he already graduated, he decided to go through another East-West Center program in the fall, but he had no way to support himself. And the East-West Center really came through for him. Another thing that the East-West Center has done was set up a food pantry for students. And they had a participant association that kind of was doing something in March. And then they had their 
volunteer arm, the Friends of the East-West Center, come through and throughout the month of May had food drives to help the students out. Now they kind of have something a little bit more solid. They've gotten donations from a lot of different companies and businesses, and students can access this food pantry whenever they want because now it's in a student building and they can access it seven days a week. It's available. And they've gotten help from the community, such as uh, Ely Farms, Time Supermarket, YNI General Store, Ham Produce. And through Ham Produce, they've been able to take advantage of a USDA agriculture program to get fresh produce for these students. But that's not to say that they're completely out of the woods. They're still accepting donations. And it's very much a marathon. It's not a sprint. And they don't know when we're going to come out of the woods with this. Circling back to the mental health aspect of things, administrators, teachers at the East-West Center have been in constant contact with these students, wanting to get a feel of what they're going through. And so Anne had this to say, they've been sending out a email almost every day. Now it's weekly because things have kind of calmed down a bit, but the staff and the teachers have really been monitoring the students, seeing what they needed and if they need any assistance at all. We set up a daily update for our students that went out to them every single day between 3 and 5 p.m. That included information about what the state was doing, what new rules and regulations were in place, both at the state level as well as in the dormitories as the situation evolved. So constant communication with the students to try to make sure that they felt like they had all the information they needed to understand what was happening. And they had to translate a lot of the news and the updates in various languages so it could come across a little bit better. So if people in the community want to help this group, what can they do? They have a food drive uh, coming up on July 10th from 9 to 11 a.m. at Burns Hall. And they're kind of having this thing where you can go in your car, drop off the food. And then they still have the emergency relief fund available to students. And it's also open for donations as well. And we could provide a link to that. Okay. Well, thanks so much, Casey. Thank you so much, Kathy. Appreciate your your digging. You you started with one thing and you you find another story. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> All right, thanks so much. And you can read Casey's stories about the international students on our webpage, hawaiipublicradio.org. And that's a wrap, everybody. Up tomorrow, Noe Tanigawa takes you into the weekend with an Aloha Friday show. But hey, you know, we'd love your feedback. If you got questions about anything you may have heard on our air, call our talkback line, email us at talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. Connect with Facebook and Twitter. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us tomorrow for more of the conversation.